Florio <laughs> and never get a chance to celebrate it. Talk about getting a year older. Here's Holmstrom. Dropped it. Lariano off in. Lariano for the game winner. Lariano shot. Score! Igor Lariano! The Detroit Red Wings. Three. The Hurricanes. Two. Wow. From deep inside the COVID-19 isolation chamber, I find myself in here in North Tonawanda, New York. It is the Sportscasters Season 10, Episode 5, I believe, and it is a great one. In a minute, we are going to take a break, and I will be joined by Hockey Hall of Famer Scotty Bowman. I want to thank Adrian Dater for helping me with this. He uh, he's friends with with uh, with Mr. Bowman, and we kind of hooked it up pretty easily. And <laughs> I tweeted this, but I had a surreal moment the other night. I was uh, you know obviously in the midst of isolation from a global pandemic when I was watching a documentary on Netflix about crazy tiger people. And I looked down at my phone, and Scotty Bowman was calling me. Uh, but we worked it out. We set it up, and I did the interview yesterday. Uh, we did about 50 minutes, and I did my best because he – you kind of just let him talk. And he's 86 years old, and some of the details uh, have been lost or some things maybe are overlapping or blending in for him. And there's a balance. Like, do I want to correct Scotty Bowman? You know, do I want to tell him, no, that was 93 or, oh, it was the, you just kind of let Scotty Bowman give you his truth. And I did the best to kind of steer him into a few different things. And he's awesome. I mean, he, he taught the interviews about 50 minutes and I think it's six minutes of me and uh, 44 minutes of Scotty, which is what I want. You know, that's how I like to do these interviews. So that's going to be up first. Second is something a little different, and I'm really excited about it. There's a band called The Sheila Divine. I've been a fan since the 90s. I've mentioned them a few times when talking about how my fans of this podcast are generally in Denver, Buffalo, and New Orleans. The Sheila Divine have always practiced the three Bs, Buffalo, Belgium, and Boston. That's where they're famous. And their singer, Aaron Perino, is going to be on the podcast today. Now, I told him he was the first rock star ever to be on the show. That was a fib. That was a mistake. Uh, Jeremy Taggart from Our Lady Peace, of course, was the first rock star on. Uh, But I do almost an hour uh, with Aaron talking about his story. He grew up in Buffalo, New York, and ended up in Boston where the Sheila Divine uh, formed. Uh, And then, you know, their success. uh, Well, we talk about their success and how it's defined. Uh, He refers to his, his dream of becoming a rock star as a failure. You know, where I kind of look at it as a success. So you can judge by that. The band is called The Sheila Divine. I'd love for you to check out their work. And Aaron Perino is the singer and the songwriter and the principal member of the band. Uh, And he's going to join us. So rock music two weeks in a row. We did Eddie Trunk uh, last week, uh, which was awesome. A great response uh, from people having Eddie on. And Eddie gave us a great shout out on his uh, serious volume show as I released my top five debut albums 
uh, list. Uh, I participated in that show he had. He read my list off and mentioned the sportscasters and gave uh, a great shout out. Now, as for me, my week has been mostly Gigaton. Uh, I've been listening to the album almost, you know, pretty much every day for a certain amount of time. Uh, I think I'm still going to hold the track by track breakdown and review one more week uh, just to give people another chance to to kind of get used to it and to know the songs a little bit better before I do that. Uh, but that is coming probably in the next episodes. Uh, one last thing. We will update the book club today. Uh, of course, we have a few different books uh, roaming around in the book club. Uh, and we will do one last thing at the end. I'm not finished with Tiger King. I was thinking about doing my review, uh, maybe even having Tammy on uh, to talk about Tiger King. Uh, but we're not finished with it, so that's going to have to wait. Uh, so I have a couple of different things in mind. Uh, we'll see what I decide to do for one last thing in a bit. All right, with all that said, I want you to hear Scotty Bowman, so I'm going to cut myself short. Uh, this is the this is the thing. We'll, we'll take a break now. Scotty Bowman, Book Club, Aaron Perino from The Sheila Divine, and then one last thing. That's the plan. Let's do it. Let's take a break. We'll be back with the great Scotty Bowman. All right, our first guest needs no explanation. He's an NHL Hockey Hall of Famer and has won more Stanley Cups than any human in the history of the Stanley Cup. He's coached the St. Louis Blues, the Buffalo Sabres, Montreal Canadiens, Pittsburgh Penguins, and uh, ended his coaching career with a Stanley Cup win in Detroit. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the legendary, the great Scotty Bowman. Hey, Mr. Bowman, how you doing tonight? Very good, thank you. I think before we get started, I think everyone in the hockey world just needs to know that that the great Scotty Bowman is safe and healthy and enjoying himself uh, during this strange quarantine period of the world. Yeah, we're like everybody, you know. uh, Time flies, but at the same time, at night it's a little longer because, you know, there's no no hockey of any kind. There's a, I mean, I've seen a lot of the rerun games, but. You know, um, you, you get so much of that, and then then they they offer other. If you sometimes when you miss a game and you don't get it back, so. But I've seen a lot of the, you know, over the last couple of last ten days, I've pretty well watched as much as I I want to watch. You know, is there a game from your career that if you could turn on NHL Network right now and it would be on that you would love to watch back? Is there one that comes to mind? Uh, maybe the last game that I coached. Uh, 2002 it was uh, it was my last game you know so I don't know if that would be the one but uh, you know there's there's some other ones that maybe I'd like to have seen but uh, you know I, uh, most of them are, are like as, as I guess the last one because it was at home in in um, Detroit and it was the the fourth uh, well the five we played five games uh, in that final against uh, Carolina. Right. So that, that, I mean, I I pretty well remember a lot about it. But uh, there's parts that you, I was watching. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I was watching a game uh, last night from um, Pittsburgh, 
Uh, no, it was from Chicago. But it was Pittsburgh at Chicago, game uh, four, the the final game in uh, 1992, and uh, that was an interesting game because uh, uh, and the games were a lot closer up to that. But it was six. It was a close game, six five in the Stanley Cup final, and uh, you know um, Chicago uh, at that time. Eddie Belfer was their number one goalie, but he, he was taken out when the score was, I think the score was 2-2 in the first period because it was a lot of goals, three goals in about a little over 35 seconds or something. So they, they brought in this goalie that nobody knew, um, um, uh, and it was Dominic Hasek. <laughs> Later got traded, traded to Buffalo, but Do, Dominic came in and, uh, you know, he did let in four goals, but, he stopped so many. He had breakaways. He had all kinds of things going on. And uh, that's the first I looked at him. I remember at the end of the second period, the score was tied. It was uh, 4-4. And uh, Yarmar Yager was in his second year with uh, with the... Uh, he was only 19 at the time he came the first year. He was 18. And he was... he was uh, You know, he wasn't a very vocal guy because he was a, kind of like a... Not, not a rookie, but second year. Mm-hmm. A lot of veterans on the team. And he was, uh, you know, alerting the players that uh, we we got to we got to win this game. We don't want to we don't want to prolong the series. You know, we don't want to let them. Even though you're up three nothing, everybody thinks it's over. But he was reminding the players that, you know, this guy's a world class goalie. He hasn't he hasn't shown it yet because I think he was playing in the my. I think Chicago drafted him. Not a high draft pick in those days. Players from Russia and the Czech Republic. They didn't get drafted high because they didn't know if they could get them out, you know. Right. And and he was, uh, I think I didn't look up his record, but I I think he played most of the season, maybe in Indianapolis, uh, if I'm right. And uh, yeah, only twenty games in the NHL that year. <clears throat> he played. He played twenty. Well, yeah. you you'd know that, but uh, I looked yeah, it up. We had a, <laughs> I looked it was a, it was a wide open game, and he had a lot of. We had a high powered offense, you know, that year we. Well, we won our last eleven games in the play. We were down. We were down to uh, the first team. We there's only three rounds in those years. We played Washington. Washington, yeah, seven uh, games. First, and we we got down three to one mm-hmm. against Washington, and we had to play. Uh, they, I think, they must have been uh, a higher seed because uh, we had to go to game five t- uh, to win there, and then we came home. We won. Went pretty handily, I think, at home, uh, game six. But then we had to go into game seven in Washington. It's a pretty tight game. I think it was a maybe a one goal or empty net or something. But that was a close game. And uh, and then we we swept Boston and we swept uh, Chicago. Yeah. So we we had like an eleven game uh, un, uh, unbeaten string in the playoffs. Uh, so that that was quite a year, you know. It was interesting because I was looking over your Pittsburgh teams, you know, just kind of going through the stuff I was going through to talk to you about this, and it almost seems like that 93 team was the the really great team. And, of course, you guys have the classic Game 7 with the Islanders, and who was it, Volek maybe, that got that goal, and um, and it just, you know, it just ends just like that. What about What about the 93 team, do you remember, and kind of how powerful that team was, and we rolled along, you know. It's funny, like the 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 '92 team was coming off the '91 Stanley Cup, and then we lost our coach uh, Bob Johnson, and uh, we, we were uh, 
same as the first year. Like until we made a big trade just before the deadline, uh, the first year, the, the 91 Cup, we uh, we made a big trade and we added uh, Ronnie Francis and Elf uh, Samuelson, and and that really turned uh, everything around the first year. And then the second year, the 92, we were maybe a little better than 500, I'm sure, but but still we weren't at the top of the league. And we made a trade with Philadelphia. We 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 were a skillful team. We needed a little size and strength, and we got a defenseman, Shell Samuelson. And we got uh, 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 we also we also got in that trade uh, Rick Tockett, mm. and uh, and and he he had a great rebound year with the end of the year rather very good playoff, and he was he was a really tough player uh, you know for a guy that put up big numbers so those two trades propelled the team, and uh, then the next year we we had no adversity I think we well we won we won our last. Um, Last 18 games of the season. Wow, 119 uh, points. What a year. And that's before the three-point games, too. 119 is a huge number. It was. And Mario, I think that's the year he had to come back and win the scoring like he had he had Hodgkins, you know? Yeah, 160 points in 60 games, Scotty. How about that? I know because <laughs> what I do know about it is, is uh, when he came back, uh, he was about 20, 25. Three or twenty-four points behind Pat Lafontaine. Yeah, and uh, he was getting three and four points a game. Oh. Even the game last night that I watched, he um, he got a goal and two or three assists. And that he's, remember the last point or last maybe it was the last assist. They said that gives him thirty-eight points for the playoffs. And I, I think if I'm not mistaken, we only played. Uh, Seven and four, eleven, fifteen games or something. You know. Yeah, he. Had, we, yeah, you're exactly right. He had fifteen games in that playoffs and over thirty points. Unbelievable. Thirty-eight. Thirty-eight yeah. points. I mean, that it was a scoring machine. You can watch the game and see, like, if you if you watch the games now, they're much different as you can imagine. Pretty rough hockey, but a lot of, a lot of body body play, but. But uh, you can, if you were, if you didn't know a lot about hockey and you watched that game, it'd be so easy to pick him out because he, he had, when he had the puck, he always something always like it was a lot of dump and chase and a lot of physicality. But when he had the puck, uh, plays developed, you know, like either shooting, he gave a good shot, but he made a lot of good passes through the neutral zone. He there was a sequence in the third period. Where uh, Yager took the puck and and sort of played puck possession in their end, and then right and he, he was on. He didn't play a lot with Mario, but I was using um, I was mixing up pretty good in that last game. You know, we, we wanted to win that game. We didn't want to come back and play a fifth game. So right. we 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 uh, uh, Mario was on uh, one shift and late in the third with with uh, with Yager and. Uh, uh, the Yager had the puck for about 20 seconds, and then Mario got it. He kept it for 30 seconds, putting pucks through guys' legs, you know, and, and resulting in a scoring chance. But he was some player, you know. He had he had a tremendous reach, and he he had the um, he had the unique style that he could make plays, which he you know you couldn't you couldn't distinguish he was scorer or a playmaker because he was both, and that usually is not. 
the case, as you know, you know. Yeah. What was he like to coach, Scotty? What was he like to like? How do you very coach quiet. a guy like that? Uh, yeah, it was very quiet. He was very instrumental in the first series because, you know, we were struggling against uh, against Washington. They they had a pretty high powered uh, group of defensemen. They could really they had four defensemen that could score a lot of goals, and we we were playing a little. Like, we were an offensive team, so we were doing what we did the year before. But in the playoffs, we had to, that series when we fell behind. Uh, we were falling behind because we, we weren't able to outscore them. And then all of a sudden, we turned it around, and he he he's, he was a, he was the leader to start playing. Uh, we, we had enough offense, so we just had to concentrate. And I think the last game we beat him in uh, – Washington was either two or three to one or three to two. It was a very close game, but we we held the, we had the lead, and that's when we learned how to defend the lead. You know, right? You you've probably thought about this. I mean, you go back so far in hockey and the great teams you had in Montreal in the seventies, and you know the great teams you had at the end of your career in Detroit. But when you think about the players you coach, I mean, is it is it? almost silly for me even me to ask if Mario was the greatest player you ever coached or I mean even the no no I mean productive wise uh, I had a lot of great players in Montreal but he was a special player you know he his ability to uh, try things um, he, I think he was about six foot four and he he didn't use his size uh, he used his size to stretch out you couldn't get the puck off him because he, he was a unique player. Like he, he would stretch his arms, like you know. And when players would try to try to get near him, he could move his body. He protected him. Is he protected the puck a lot with his size? So you know, of all the players that I had, that was of of high high caliber, uh, he would be the biggest of them all. And then he was able to use his size. You know, mm-hmm. I had one in Montreal that uh, was a defenseman though big guy Serge Savard and uh, he was about six foot three and Larry Robinson was about the same and they they were the the same type of players that could they could get themselves in the position and 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 the player the other team couldn't come and and, and take the puck because they, they keep moving their body around you know and and that's when size was a big factor now of course speed is the factor it's it's a completely different that's what I took from the game watching it last night and then I watched the 70s in Montreal, uh, 77 and 78. Uh, they, we played Boston at the time, and uh, those games were were pretty pretty fast for the for that era. But there was a lot of lot more bumping in the corners and in front of the net. There was no. It's hard for the players to to uh, remain in the scoring position. You know, you get pushed right out of there. Right. So I think I think size. Size always meant meant something. Now I don't know. I mean, I, you know, even on our, even if you look at the present uh, hockey, I mean, size is always a good factor. But your defense core, there's a lot of really good defensemen in the league that aren't as big as some forwards, but they're they're so mobile and they 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 their tendency is to play so good offensively. You know, they they're like a fourth forward on the ice. And uh, I think that makes a lot of difference for some teams. Uh, they don't. It's hard to get those kind of defensemen that can defend, and at the same time, when they need be, they can uh, join the attack. And, and you know, the defensemen 
kind of they kind of run the game from the points now because the end zone is a lot bigger with the 64 feet to the net rather than 60, and the and the teams the teams don't it's a big end zone so they don't go out as much on the point man they so you you know your your point men that can have a lot of creativity have good shots at the net uh, hit guys with the puck in the right spot are uh, are key players and they don't always have to be oversized you know yeah you know it's interesting because I, I look at your career i the last couple of days i i read the the book that ken dryden wrote about you and uh you know i'm looking at all these stats what do you ask scotty bowman there's all these seasons all these stanley cups and this is something i kind of thought was interesting you know the first you enter the league in 67 68 with st louis and the first three seasons you make it to the stanley cup and you guys don't win. And it, it's it's a funny thing to ask a guy like Scotty Bowman who's been a part of, what, 14, 15 Stanley Cup teams. But in ninth, going into the 19, at the end of the 1970 season when you don't win for the third time, did you actually have a feeling like, I'm going to never get over this hump. I'm going to never win a Stanley Cup. Like, Can you go back to that point? Can you remember what it was like to feel to well, not I was be a, a realist. Yeah, you have to know. Like, I was a realist, and people that can't relate to that era you know the league the six-team league was very strong there was a rival there was a western canada league that that was it was american hockey league where most of the nhl the six nhl teams as you can imagine there was only maybe uh, at the most uh, not even 120 jobs and there was a lot of good players even at that era even though there was not a lot no no europeans still a lot of good players so the American young players went to the American League, veteran players that maybe weren't going to make it, maybe maybe a bit like sometimes AAA baseball has some prospects, but they have some they have some real career minor leaguers. So the career minor leaguers were in the Western Hockey League, a very good league. It was between Canada and USA. There was teams in Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Diego, Spokane, and then some in Canada, and uh, that league. Uh, about 1964, it was a very strong leader, uh, on, uh, president. His name was Al Leader. And he wanted to be the Western arm because uh, it was all out west. It was nothing. The closest team to the east would have probably been Calgary because mm. it was Calgary and there was, I think, Edmonton and there was Vancouver. And then, uh, then uh, well, I don't think Winnipeg was there. And most of the other teams were in the U.S. It's very Portland is another team. Strong, Portland, Seattle, that's it. Portland, Seattle, Spokane, uh, San Diego, uh, Los Angeles, and uh, San Francisco. Strong league. They wanted to become NHL caliber. The league didn't want to didn't want anything to do with them. Then they got a little concerned. Well, it would be about 1965 because the the, the, um, the group was getting impatient. They were big cities. And uh, so the NHL was worried about a rival league. So Clarence Campbell, the president, he decided, well, let's 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 ha- let's have our own expansion, and we'll we'll expand in six six places, you know, without disturbing sure. that league. Yeah. Although they did, put San Francisco was now uh, they, we didn't get a team in San Francisco. They didn't have a building, but they had a team. They they had, they had a team in Oakland, which is across the way. But so so they came in in '67. But the formula was really tough because the teams, the six original teams, there was two drafts. There was a goalie draft 
and there was a player draft. And the goalie draft was tough. I mean, the existing teams, most of the teams only played with one goalie. Like, they didn't have a two-goalie two platoon system. So the teams, were the, the six original, were allowed to protect one goalie, and other goalies in their farm system were available. So, so that 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 and that was probably the strongest part of the draft because uh, you sure. know there was still yeah. veteran goalies that weren't bad and some good young ones. So, like Bernie Perrant was the best young goalie. There was another goalie, Cesar Maniego, went to San. We we were lucky in St. Louis. We got Glenn Hall. He was about thirty-five, and Terry Sawchuk had won the cup with Toronto in the '67 playoffs, and he went to uh, Los Angeles. But they were in their thirties and you know getting on. Sawchuk was maybe about thirty-eight. So, so what happened is the player draft. They allowed the teams to protect. I think it was eleven or twelve players, plus a lot of first-year pros. So, like any any guys that had been in their first year. It was a tough draft because, you know, they they lost player number, well, maybe it was 12, because they lost player number 13, and then they, they were allowed to they were allowed to pull back number 14. Then they lost number 15, so they pulled back 16. Then they lost 17, and they pl- pulled back 18, and it was over. Because wow. the six teams only allowed, they only lost three players each. So the the new teams got 18 players and a goalie, and I mean, you know, where where are you going to get the other player? How are you going to build your team? You couldn't. There's no. They didn't have junior teams. The draft was not. The big draft didn't start till '69. It's amazing how those teams. So we were really a, a group of. I mean, it was fortunately the minor leagues were pretty good because you know uh, the best 120 were in the NHL. There was a few teams that had players that should have been in the NHL, but they were strong. So I, I never worried about – I just I, – when, when we won the, the West Division, I was more concerned about, you know, make a good showing. And we did make a good showing. We The first year, we lost a couple of games in overtime. It was amazing, you know. And because the team – you know, the West Division the first year, they played home-and-home uh, home with the East. And then we played a series, uh, a schedule. Uh, how balanced it was, Philadelphia finished first in the 67-68 season, 74-game schedule. They had 70, not even 500. They got 73 points. Pittsburgh finished fifth. Out of the playoffs, they had 67 points. So you wow. could throw a blanket yeah. around four or five of the team. I think the lowest, the team that didn't make the playoffs was Oakland. They were, quite, they were the only team that was way behind. You know, yeah. and so we didn't get many. We didn't get a lot of prime. We had a few. We didn't. I mean, they kept the top twelve. So you know, uh, we got. We and we couldn't get many young players. So it was. I mean, you know, it's. It was tough sledding. I mean, really tough sledding. But we we were fortunate in St. Louis because we got some really good veterans and we solidified our goaltending. Gee, we had Glenn Hall the first year, Jacques Plant, and Glenn Hall the next two. We were, I mean, they were old, and they couldn't play a lot of games. They played split the season. But we had goaltending, and if you look at the standings in the 1968-69 season, which is our second year, 74 games, the Blues gave up 157 goals. Wow. Now, two a game is 148. So 100, we only give up eight more goals than two per game. 
We got 13 shutouts and 22 games we gave up one goal. I mean, we were a really solid defense. We couldn't score as like the East, but we were, I mean, I looked at the record about a month ago. The previous low, and they are 70 games, was was Detroit, Sachuk, Terry Sachuk, 1950-152. Uh, Detroit gave up 131 goals. No team after 1952 gave up less than 157. Wow. So you know we yeah. we we were, we were we could I mean we had a lot of veterans Doug Harvey uh, Dickie Moore we had Hall of Fame players that were just resurrected but you know a short short time they did a good they were happy to get a job back in the NHL but um, no I I never worried about losing uh, I would like to have won we had two or three in overtime but but you know uh, the league wasn't uh, the league got better though you know they they started to buy some minor league teams. I mean the amazing, the amazing uh, accomplishment in hockey, when you think about it, the Philadelphia Flyers won the Stanley Cup in 1974, and that was only about seven seasons after they were a team. That was a fantastic. Right. I mean they they played a different style, but hey, whatever works works, you know. And and uh, that was a, that's probably one of the major accomplishments in all of hockey. Imagine doing. I mean, teams teams that go even to today they go. Th- I mean, there's a lot more teams. They go 30, 40, something. Well, Detroit went 42. New York Rangers went. Uh, I don't know, 40 something. Uh, Toronto is now. A, they must be hitting around 67. Uh, they won it last. Toronto. How many years is that? That's uh, <laughs> let's see, 70. To, <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> and then the Sabres yeah, are 1970. So Sabres and Leafs are basically the same. Tons of years. And, and Vancouver, they haven't won, have they? No. Nope. Same no. as the Sabres. Same year, so <laughs> 70, yeah. So that gives you an illustration. Yeah. Uh, it's much more difficult maybe now because there's, what the hang, there's 30, 31 team going on 32. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, I don't think people realize now when they look at they look at the Blues and they say, oh, my God, they never won a game in 68, 69, 70. But – I mean, I've been on. I've been on when the league was even strong. I had sweeps both ways. We got swept by by New Jersey in 1995. Uh, Montreal. We we swept Philly in '76. We swept Boston in '77. You know, uh, we uh, uh, Pittsburgh. We we swept Chicago in in '92. Detroit. We we had a sweep. Uh, well, we sweep Philly and we sweep Washington. You know, in '97, '98. Right. So. So really, uh, people that, uh, that that don't research like you would, they they just look at the thing. I don't know what a lousy team they were, you know. Right. That was far from the case. I mean, our team played way above their capabilities, but we had a team that could play defense. They we were a real stingy team, you know. Imagine imagine thirteen shutouts, and we were playing. I think by the second year we got that big performance. I think we were playing the six teams two and two now, you know, two home, two away. Right. So we we had a more, it was a tougher, a, a tough schedule, you know. You mentioned just wanting to, like, you know, make a good showing in the final. Scotty, you might, I don't know if you remember this, but in that first Stanley Cup final, there wasn't a single game by more than one goal. Two in overtime and all one goal games. So, you know, you guys yeah, are right so, there I mean, with that the shows Canadians. You, like, you yeah. know, we... We could hold. See, we could, we could, we could hold the opposition off. We could. Well, goaltending was 
unbelievable, you know. So and, uh, I have to ask you one more St. Louis question. So obviously in 1970 then, it's the third year in a row, and you played the Bruins. And game four, it's four to three, an overtime game, and one of the most famous goals and pictures in the history of hockey, right? The Bobby Orr goal with the, the you know, the kind of flip up that he does and that beautiful picture. And I just I just got to ask you, like, what? Can you can you remember what it was like watching it play out in real time and and being a part of that? And def, you know, it's, it's on the wrong end of it, sure. But we're going to get to some great great moments where you're on the right end. But what about that famous goal, um, you know, in Boston that night um, by Bobby? Yeah, Moore? we we uh, it was amazing. Where Boston's got a chance to win the cup at home on a Sunday afternoon, I think it was, and uh, boy, that was, we we were ahead. You know, we we had a lead in that game. I mean, we we were ahead three to two, late not late, about halfway through the third, we got a we got a face off interference penalty, and they scored the tying goal. Had an awesome power play. I'll never forget that. And then I I remember that more than the goal. But you know, right. I was so upset. Right. Face off interference penalty. But nevertheless, no, I knew how good Orr was, and I saw him play junior, coached against him. Uh, you know. Uh, they, they, you know, that's what good teams do. They, they push down, and uh, but you know, we had got beaten a, a couple of times in that series pretty handily. So that 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 was a big effort for us to to stretch it. You know, you get to Montreal, then obviously his first year, don't win the cup, but that second year, that team that might be maybe the one of the best teams you coach. I mean, fifty-two and ten and sixteen. You know, 120 points and just dominant, really, in the playoffs. I mean, nobody touched you. 4-2 against Buffalo, 4-1 Montreal, 4-2, um, or excuse me, Buffalo, Philadelphia, and then Chicago in the final 4-2. What was special about that first team? And was there a moment in that year maybe where you said, you know, hey, I came close in St. Louis, but this is the team. This is the team that's gonna get get me over the hump. Was there was there something? Well, we it was the beginning of a lot. Uh, Montreal capitalized on on making trades for draft picks. So you know we had we had drafted uh, players that were just coming into their own. You know, uh, uh, so and it was a good combination of young players. Uh, you know, that were just making their mark. Uh, you know, and then then we had the good veterans, and of course we had we had the. Uh, the great goaltending because Dryden had won had won the cup for Montreal in '71, you know, two years earlier. So, yeah, I remember that year. We uh, we stumbled around afterwards. When the Montreal won the cup in '71, they were way in a way they were the third place team. You look at the standings; they weren't even close. I mean, the best team was Boston. I don't know how Boston. I mean, I do know because I've been on teams that should win and you don't win, but Boston. Boston had a had a powerhouse. I mean, in fact, they won in '70 and '72, and they they would have won in '71. Dryden just stood on his head, mm. and they lost Game Seven to uh, to uh, Montreal. And uh, then you know they still were st- they, they a, that team was so strong that that uh, when you look at uh, then Orr got injured. He started to get knee injuries about around '74. You know, it was just tragic for him because he started in 66. He lasted 10 years. But his last three years, he was really in trouble with his knees, you know, surgery after surgery. And, uh, I mean, you know, when you think about Bobby Orr, he's rated in the top players of all time, and he only played a decade. 
is that's how good he was, you know. Right. So I mean, uh, no, I mean he was one of a kind and changed the game. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be in an era where I saw him play. And uh, you know, I I don't I can't put I can't put it down. Uh, I mean, I I I see Wayne Gretzky's uh, records. I see Mar- Mario. I know what he could do. I mean, I I've seen the great players in Montreal. You know, there's been a lot of great players in the league that you have to take into account. But when his, when, when just the fact that he's mentioned, and some people would, I mean, I, I'm, I go back an awful long time, and I, I, I was young when I saw him, but I wasn't that. I was, it was, it was finished my junior year, Gordy Howe, and I mean, Gordy Howe. If you analyze Gordy Howe, he was 20 times consecutive. First or second team All Star. Wow. First or second team. I think it's twelve or thirteen first team All Stars, and and the other seven or eight second team. And when he wasn't the first team All Star, it was because the Rocket Richard. Sure. You know they were always mm-hmm. in. I mean, if people that know the late forties and fifties and go into well, Rocket finished in nineteen sixty, but through the fifties, uh, there's no two players that people would say, oh, it's between these three or four. Uh, and, you know, it, it got so close. The Rocket was a tremendous goal scorer. And uh, they, they said, if you if you want to win championships, Howe is going to, he's going to play offense, he's going to play defense, and he's going to be your enforcer, you know, mm-hmm. all three. And then Rocket is going to fill the building with spectacular goals at crucial times. It was very hard for me to, to, to see both of them. And, you know, I know the value of both players. And uh, Gordie Howe was uh, an amazing player. I mean, you know, he's ambidextrous. He was powerful. He was as tough as nails, you know. And, uh, and he, I mean, you know, he was, the, he was a standard bearer a long time till Wayne Gretzky came along. And all, all due, due respect for his accomplishments, you know, but uh, you know the the Oilers were a great dynasty. They had not just uh, you know when you, you you look at look at Mark Messier, he's 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 probably in the shadows of Gretzky because of of statistics, you know, and and everything like that. And that's what I always said. Like I I've been watching these old games, and uh, the difference. I mean, when you watch, uh, as I said, Serge Savard, Bobby uh, uh, Bobby Clark, boy. Bobby Clark, he touches every every box you want to make. If you want to rate a player like offense, defense, uh, penalty minutes, uh, point per game, Toughest, Stanley right? Cup, mm-hmm. uh, it's amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of great players. Unfortunately, you you know, it's not fair to just say I could not tell you that I think this guy is the greatest player that ever played because I would I would I would feel in my own mind doubt that I made the right call. Scotty, I grew up in Buffalo, and I was born in 1980. So when I was discovering hockey and becoming a hockey fan, you were you were my team's coach. You know, those first 20, 30 times I was in the odd, I remember I would be – I can remember this distinctly, remembering looking for you and being able to find your head. Like I would, that's how I would find my coach. You know, I'd know, oh, there he is, you know, from up in the oranges or wherever we were sitting – uh, that night and 
there there is for me just thinking about your time in buffalo and appreciating it so much and appreciating the fact you spent so much time in my city afterwards you know and and really you know made buffalo a home what could you tell me kind of about your time in buffalo and what you think about it most obviously that first season was you know well the either the first one or 83 84 probably the two best teams you had here but we, we had you know, we we were in. People don't realize the Adams division was beast. so strong. Yeah, beast. it was so strong. You had the remnants of the Montreal dynasty still. I mean, you know, those those players were still there, a lot of them. And then you had the advent of the Boston Bruins. They had uh, in those days. You know, guys like Bork and Neely and these guys were were they could carry a team. You know, a couple of guys like they do now. And then Quebec Quebec Nordics were really, I mean, they, they, they come out of the expansion, and they, they did a great job in, in, uh, in, the, in the NHL, you know, and, and they, all, they finally, moved, the team moved, but they, it's the Quebec Nordics that won the cup in, uh, into the Colorado, uh, sure. Exactly. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if you look at the standings of the point totals for some of those Buffalo teams, we, we, we were right there, but we didn't have a lot of experience in the playoffs. Right. If you said, What's, you know, in the playoff experience, it's a special type of experience. We we had we, we you know we we I thought I thought we made some terrific trades. We I mean when you trade uh, when you trade veteran players and the players that you end up drafting or make the Hall of Fame, that, that that doesn't happen very often, you know. And I mean uh, I think Tom Barrasso's has got a he's got to be pretty close to a Hall of Fame goalie when you start looking at goalies, you know, but. Phil Housley, Dave Andrichuk, you know, there were, you know, I mean, there were some good players there, you know, in Buffalo. We didn't have enough of them, and, uh, you know, it was tough sledding because other teams were, were, were pretty good, too, in our division, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the year that you finished second, that, that second great team we talked about that you had here in 83-84, one point, 103-point team, one point behind Boston who had 104. You know what I mean? So that that's a good that was a good team, and that that was probably my first team that I knew every player. You know, I was running yeah. in the hallways and doing the three stars, kind of entertaining my family and stuff. That 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 year, yeah, we had, we had like you know the Mike Felino was a yeah was a and really Perot, attractive though. player. You know, yeah. I mean, Gilbert Perot was. Yeah. I mean, don't forget he he had been in the league when I went there in St. Louis. Had been in the league ten years, and then he had another. I don't know, seven or eight years, but he was, uh, I mean, it, you know, when you look at the Buffalo Sabres, 50 years of hockey, and he's still, I mean, the people that would be able to tell you all 50 years, there's not very many maybe, I don't know if you could, I don't think you could put anybody ahead of him. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a, maybe Hashik, maybe Hashik, and that's a kind of an apples and oranges comparison, you know, but. Um, no, I, I think Perot, I think, uh, like you know, watching him play uh, a small ice surface in Buffalo, yeah, offensive offensive uh, threat with uh, with his self goals makes a very unselfish player. You know, uh, pull people out of the seats. I mean, he, he's a singular attraction. There's probably, I mean, you know, when a player like that could, the closest thing I could maybe measure to Perot. Uh, but it's a different kind of player. But for crowd attraction, Bobby Hull. Okay. Bobby Hull could Bobby Hull could wind up. There's very few players 
They can wind up with the puck, and they could virtually, you think they can go through it, just about everybody. And that's what Perot could do. Perot in full flight, backing defense off and making other players better. You know, anybody that could tell you about Perot and I, 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 I could, some of my best memories were, uh, unfortunately, uh, he got injured, but we had the Canada Cup, I think it was in 79 or maybe 80, and uh, maybe it was 80, but... Uh, 76 and 81, you coached the Canada Cup team. Well, yeah. we, had a, we had a line of Gretzky, Perot, uh, Perot moved to the left wing, Gretzky at center, Lafleur right wing. Wow. They, they were so good in the training camp, it's unbelievable. And then Perot broke his leg, Ugh. broke his ankle. That was a tough loss, and he didn't. He missed some games with the Sabers too. Yeah. But uh, he was an awesome player, Perot. I mean, you know, uh, he, he carried that team and made it. A, I mean, he made it a contender just about overnight. You know. Scotty, just the sportscaster here with the the great Scotty Bowman. Just, I mean, a legend. I can't even believe this. Uh, but. Just a couple more minutes, I'll let you go. You you coached uh, the Canada Cup, like I said, 76-81. That's the only two times you, you coached Canada internationally. When you look back, do you wish you did more? Did you like doing the international stuff? Do you Were you a little bit envious maybe when the, the, the league started sending the players to the Olympics and, you know, finally? Yeah, and, I would have uh, liked it. I mean, yeah. yeah. You never get a chance to do, but right. those international tournaments. See, when they first started, the NHL was at a big disadvantage because the the Soviets were playing eleven months a year. Right. We 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 weren't training like they do now, and that would be at the beginning of the season. Even the seventy two series, I think that what kept it so close was, uh, I mean, they're good players in Russia for sure, but you know the Canadian players were not like they are today. I mean, there's no year-round training in that, you know. And, sure. And, you know, and when you pick an all-star team, you know, it's not like the Russian team always had a big edge on any tournament because they played together. They, 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 they want a good player, they just add them to the team. So it was like, a, it was like a, uh, an annual all-star team, but playing uh, together the whole season. And, uh, and that's why, you know, the Olympics are a little bit more even because the good teams, they're, they're all, there's nobody that has an Olympic team for a whole season. Sure. You know, because yeah. you put the team together, you, whatever the training camp is, but it's, it, there's, no, there's, no, there's no, even the Russian teams and the U.S. teams and the Czech teams, they're not, they're not, they don't, they, they're not together very often. It's, they're, it's a one-shot deal. And then, and even the next, even if they had, even if they had a competition the next year, it's going to be all changed again. Yeah, that eighty-one Canada Cup is so interesting to me, Scotty, because it was actually postponed twice. I think it was originally supposed to be in seventy-nine, but then in nineteen eighty, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan and uh, Canada with the boycotts, and finally you get around to playing it in eighty-one. And I just, you know, that's like the height of the Cold War, you know, and. uh, what was it like to coach those games? Was it did it feel more than hockey? Like what what do you remember about eighty one, that Canada Cup? Obviously you guys end up uh, getting the silver. Do you remember much about that one? Well, no, but those short tournaments, you know, and it's still there today, you can have a great start, but you get down to a single game or two, you know, and it's so difficult. I right. mean it's uh it's it's a. Uh, 
Yeah, they 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 uh, they always had. I mean, I I go back to the fifty mid fifties with the Russians. Uh, they used to do tours when I was a junior coach, and I, I mean, I I knew how good. I I didn't know in seventy two how good they were because you know they were uh, they were an all star team playing together, but they their concept of team game they were so so ahead of us, you know, like. I mean, they they uh, they had the opportunity. It's a big country. A lot of players play in Russia. They don't have, you know, they don't have baseball. They don't have uh, much basketball. They don't have much. They don't have NFL football. You know, I think I think uh, the Russia. When you look at Russia, it's a sports nation, and uh, they get a lot of athletes. I mean, I don't say it's just hockey. Probably soccer too. But they get a lot of good athletes playing mm-hmm. hockey. You know, where North America like. Lately, we're getting really good American athletes to take up hockey. Sure. Like guys like Austin Matthews and these guys. Jack Eichel. Yeah. You know, but, you know, back 20, 30 years ago, uh, you know, I remember even, I I remember Bob Johnson, that was his favorite statement. He was a good young coach in college, and he went in the NHL. He's a wonderful coach, very, very offensive-minded. And (laughs) when he told me in 91 or something he said i'd like to have seen john elway on skates you know <laughs> yeah but, but we, we weren't getting the, the 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 top athletes were some some would take up hockey but i mean it wasn't an american game you know what i mean right and uh and so that was a big a big thing with the russians uh they always had they got a flock of players over there you right. know even now i mean imagine they got their own league and it's it's not as good as the nhl but it's not far off Right, yeah, the KHL, exactly. Uh, Wow. Yeah, that 81, it's it's, it's such an interesting final, too, because you guys, like, dominate the first period, and that, you know, it's like a 12 to 4. I actually watched this game, like, a year ago or something, and then Russia kind of pulled away at the end, but just such an interesting tournament. And like you said, maybe if Perot is there, you know, if he doesn't... Well, I mean, look at them... The miracle, on, the miracle on ice. Uh, right, that was the year before, yeah, in '80. I mean, they they won in 1980. Yeah, it's, it's a one shot deal. Right. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the odds of them winning would be astronomical. I did happen to see the game in New York when uh, the the Russians beat them like ten to two or right, ten to at three. Right, the Garden. Yeah. Yeah, I was at that game. Wow. I mean, because we had we had players that we had drafted in from Buffalo, but. But nevertheless, you know, things things change, eras change, and I don't know what the future holds now because we don't know what we're going to have coming out of this uh, this virus uh, problem, you know? Sure. Uh, you don't know. You don't know. I mean, there's it, many, many balls in the air, and uh, none have come down to be caught yet, you know? Yeah. Uh, the sportscasters, like I said, finishing up with the great Scotty Bowman, uh, Stanley Cup, victories and so many different decades and you know people will think about the ones you want as a coach but in this, this latter part of your career as a consultant with the Blackhawks and working with your son has that been a was that a thrill for you to be able to uh to to help your son as an advisor and to see the success that those Blackhawks teams had and really revitalizing hockey in Chicago and um you know the watching Pat Kane and and Jonathan Taves and just the 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 great runs is that is that really satisfying was that really satisfying for you? Well, it's good timing for me because I I when I went to Detroit, it was my going to be my last stop. And uh, uh, what happened was in uh, after two thousand eight, after uh, you know winning winning a cup in Detroit, 
my son Stan, who grew up in Buffalo, he was only young. He was only 34 at the time, uh, and he got Hodgkin's disease. And I got a call from the manager, uh, Dale Talon. My uh, Stan was his assistant, saying, "Would you? We're looking for some experience. Is there any way you'd like to come to Chicago?" Well, it was a. I mean, it was pretty easy and pretty difficult because easy on the fact that he needed some help because he, you know, he got he was had a young he had two young boys and he was only. 34, and uh, you never know with this uh, uh, cancer, you know, sure. nobody knows the unknown, and uh, unfortunately, I made the right decision, because it came, after six months, it came back, and then he had to go through a stem cell the second time, so, I mean, you know, I didn't never want to leave Detroit, because I had been, been there since 93, but they understood what I was doing, so I get to Chicago, and the timing was good because the team was was being rebuilt. There was a lot of lot of talent in the, that they had picked up uh, along the way by not being a very strong team uh, through throughout the early parts. You know, the, the early part of 2000, sure. and then here we are, 2008, and they got themselves about half a dozen players ready to come in and play in the NHL, and they got the draft with uh, Jonathan Taze, number three pick, and, and Patrick Kane, number one pick. And, and then on your way. So yeah, it was a, it was a, a great time in my life because uh, you know I was getting on and and I didn't have to do a lot of traveling and uh, I was busy in the playoffs. But uh, I, I've kind of pulled pulled back the last little while because I I like where I my I like my standing and I, I go to the games in Tampa. Uh, I don't go to Chicago very often, but uh, you know I just I follow it more than I try to get involved and I enjoy it. Well, listen, Scotty, this has been such an honor for me to be able to to take this time with you and just kind of reminisce about some games. I know we kind of jumped around and uh I just wanted to kind of yeah, well, good, l- go. good luck then. I'll uh I'll be waiting to, to see how you progress. Okay? <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for all the time and stay safe and healthy down there in Florida. Yep. And uh hopefully we'll, we'll we be can... here for a while. Thank you. Okay. Thank Thanks. you, Scotty. Could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hauling out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high Way up firm and high I want to thank the great Scotty Bowman For being on the Sportscasters, that was a treat Appreciate uh, the time that Scotty gave us, and talking to him was a pleasure. All right, quickly, I wanted to go through the book club. Three books we've been working on. Of course, two episodes ago, John Feinstein uh, joined us to talk about his book, The Back Roads to March, The Unsung, Unheralded, and Unknown Heroes of a College Basketball Season. If you want to hear John talk about that, again, it's Season 10, Episode 3, uh, for a detailed bit of information about that the inside game bad calls strange moves and what baseball behavior teaches us about ourselves by keith law uh, is also one of the books we are reading keith and i are supposed to 
uh, record an interview soon on this, but the publisher has asked me to hold that uh, interview until we get closer to the release date, which I believe is April 20th. Uh, so I will do that. But again, the book is called The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. You can pre-order that, of course. And the last book is Tanking to the Top, The Philadelphia 76ers and the Most Audacious Process in the History of Sports. Um, as I got some text messages coming in from yeah, the great Jeff Passan. Uh Again, tanking to the top, the Philadelphia 76ers and the most audacious process in the history of professional sports is by Yaron Weitzman. Uh, and Yaron uh, will be on the podcast. I was thinking about reaching out to him and maybe doing this next. Uh, he's a first-time author, and his book came out on March 17th, which probably wasn't the best timing. Uh, but, man, it's gotten a bunch of run and some really good play, and I'm excited to talk to him. Uh, about the story in tanking, which has always fascinated me, of course, with the Sabres being a part of one of the most infamous tanks uh, in history. And, of course, there's still a debate here in Buffalo as to whether or not it was worth it. So that's the book club. That's where we're at. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Aaron Perino from the Sheila Divine. It's a really fun conversation. I love to hear his story. It's a fascinating one. And uh, then we'll be back on the other side with plugs and one last thing. Our next guest is from Buffalo, New York. And is the lead singer and principal songwriter of the band, The Sheila Divine. He's coming to us today from his quarantine in Vermont. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Aaron Perino. What's up, Aaron? How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Just hanging out in Vermont, uh, living through the apocalypse. First rock star on the show. Mm. We've had people who write really? about rock stars and people who talk about rock stars, but never people who are actually rock stars. Well, it's debatable whether I'm a rock star, but I do play music. <laughs> to me, you're a rock star. I'm, I'm, I am self-appointing that title to you, whether you want to accept right, it or well, not. Thank you. Um, first of all, I love the new record. Um, really was excited when it came on Bandcamp. Right? That was the first time I ever... Did that where I pre-ordered it and on there and got to pick my price kind of. I think I paid a few bucks more for you and um, sent it out. And I love that. And I love all – I mean I've actually been a fan like pretty much – you know you got the three Bs, right? So I was in one of those Bs. And it's funny. I will always tell people about that because this podcast has three Bs except for they don't start with B. So this, people care <laughs> about this podcast in Denver, Buffalo, and New Orleans. So and you got Boston. Weird. Yeah, you have Boston, Belgium, and Buffalo. So, but I was in the yep. you know a Buffalo kid, nineteen years old, I think, or so. And um, what was it? The Edge started playing Hum, I guess. Yep. Yeah, and then yeah. I went to a ton of shows early. Like I remember, remember when Thursday in the Square was still in the Square, and yeah. you guys basically uh, played I think like Crash uh, Test Dummies. Was that the show? Was it? I don't know. I, what I remember about it was that 
I was on the steps of like the, the, um, what would you call that? A statue? I don't know. It was like a, the, yeah. yeah, there's yeah, like, that those, monument. yeah, like those steps you, and then you guys were like right there pretty much like, cause then they reconfigured, I think. But I remember that one pretty early and, um, and funny about that show, which yeah. is crazy. I think it, it was either, I think it was with crash test dummies. We were opening for them. Um, we did two of them, but like one of them, it was that, and then Jay Moore, the comedian, happened to be in town, <laughs> and like he he came and he's like, "Can I introduce you guys?" And then he ended up like smoking pot with my bassist in some van. Did he? Uh, did he? Did he pass out or did he do the introduction? I don't remember him at no, all. No, he did the he oh, did okay. the inter, he did the introduction. We have it somewhere. It's like it's actually recorded. So that's awesome. But I can't remember if it was with the crash test dummies or if it was another one we did. But it was like two in the square. But they were both amazing. Did you, so like the three B? So I understand Boston and Buffalo. What's the Belgium connection? Uh, well, I mean, when New Parade came out, um, we had this record promo guy named Steph DeVos. He worked for Roadrunner. Um, he was a huge fan of the band, and he kind of like just made it his mission to get us airplay and stuff in Belgium, and it kind of you know, it happened. And ever since then, we've just, we keep going back even to this day. Um, just, we've had lots of, lots of, uh, support and kind of just made it on the radio. You know, there, that's the difference like in like countries like that where socialism, uh, you know, if you get on radio, it's national radio. Cause it's just like, you know, right. there's like one station for each genre. So. Gotcha. All right, let's hold on. Let's back up a little bit because I think that's almost even too far ahead. Because I wanted to start. So you're a Buffalo kid. You were born what late seventies. Grew up in Hamburg. Went to Hamburg High. What do you? What right. anything, anything stick out about growing up in Buffalo? Or well, I listened to some of the songs and I think like maybe you weren't that high on it. But um, well, you know, <laughs> uh, I I like going back now. But right. at the time, no, I, I hated it. Like growing up, um, you know, I was like bullied. Uh, didn't really love my my high school experience um i mean i just remember like driving from hamburg to buffalo through lackawanna and all the abandoned sort of right you know that five. desolate yeah yeah, yeah. Like that that to me is like that sticks with me just as far as like visually um and then you know just losing four super bowls in a row right that that sticks with me <laughs> how old were you during super bowl 25 I think I was 10. Uh, I was 10, I think. 25 I think I was... I, I can't, I'm trying to think. I mean, I definitely was living at home, but... Right, like, 1990-ish? I, I yeah, oh, I was in 11th grade. Okay. Um, yeah, so and, uh, yeah, so bummed, you know. Like, right. That was just, like, so heartbreaking. So, But, yeah, that era of the Bills was, you know, the pinnacle, I guess, for sports. Yeah, no, they, they haven't in Buff- met it since, for sure. It's well, but it's also it's tough to match four Super Bowls in a row. Anyway, I mean, even the Patriots. Yeah, I mean, it's insane. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you grew up here, and then you went to college, SUNY College, and then that's where you went to college with the original guys in the band. But if I got this right, you actually formed when you were all in Boston, kind of separately. It's not like better than Ezra, like better than Ezra, like went to LSU together and formed there. But you guys were later in Boston, right? Is that right? Well, it was sort of the drummer and I at the time, um, you know, we were roommates in college, whatnot, whatnot. I was in a different band. It was called the Waverly's. 
um, we all moved to Boston and we broke up. The band did like pretty fast. So it's just me and the drummer were hanging out in town. And then Jim, who also went to our college, happened to be in Boston. And I had known him, but not I wasn't like really tight with him in college. But then kind of in Boston, being someone that I knew from college, we hung out and that's how it kind of started. Were you a fan of like power trios? Like I know growing up here, I was always like really into Rush and Triumph, and kind of was awed by the like <laughs> uh, idea that these three guys could like make all this sound. Like, were you interested in the idea of power trios, or was it just you had these three guys? So you I mean, power trio I would, it'd probably you be Nirvana. Okay, that's the, that's the, another good the, example, the right? That's another good. But one. Uh, yeah, for me, but um, I don't know. I honestly, it could have been four. I mean, we expanded to four, so right. I don't know if it was like. Uh, necessarily sought out to be a trio, but it was just kind of like, oh, it's two people I know, and like we started playing, and then it was like it worked. So, what was it like in Boston at the time? Like, when I always think of the Boston music scene, I think of like that college was at the Berkeley School of Music that's there, and sure, you know, these bands somehow like evolved from that. Like, I think Dream Theater, I, I know they have some roots to that college. I don't know if everyone went there or not, and I mean, when yeah, you're. You're in the more proficient um, musician world. Okay, yeah. Uh, but, you know, Boston, the reason I chose it was just like, you know, it was like the Pixies, uh, Belly, uh, Lemonheads, like all those kind of bands. Buffalo Tom, or was of, that Buffalo Exactly, Tom. Yeah. Buffalo Tom. Yep. Yeah. So, um, that and it just, you know, New York City seemed too big of a place for us. So I, I chose Boston just because it was like a big city, but yet not not as intimidating, I guess. Do you ever like think about the very, very beginning of what would become the Shield Divine, like the first notes or the first times you guys played or like when you really knew like, okay, this is a band and we're going to name it and this band's going to have a record and we're going to play shows. Like, do you remember when it got to that feeling as opposed to like maybe before that there's a stage of like, we're jamming together. I know these musicians or whatever, but then it gets more formal. Do you, do you think back to that period at all? I mean, when I was in college, I like, I mean, I quit college to be a musician um, uh-huh. with my other band. I was all in. So when I started Sheila Divine, I was, I was already like all in. Like right. it was like, this is what I'm going to do. And so, you know, I was working at like a coffee shop and that was like the means to, you know, have rent. But beyond that, it was just like, we rehearsed like every single day. It was, it was definitely like, I mean, we got signed within, I want to say like four months of being a band uh, because it was just like, that's what we did. Every night we'd go to the, to these clubs and hang out and meet the scene. And then, you know, I got some shows and it was, it was all momentum. I like willed it to happen. Kind of. I was kind of asking you about the scene. I want to follow up on that, but you mentioned the scene, the, I don't know if you've seen Pearl Jam 20, the documentary Cameron Crow. Uh, I did. Yeah. You know how he, he, it's a big point he makes in the beginning about how the scene in Seattle was different. And I think he compared it to Atlanta, maybe. Um, or maybe someone else brings that up. Maybe it's Dave Grohl brought that up. But um, he, he, he makes a big point to say, like, this scene was different because these bands cared about each other and they they went and watched each other play and they, they had each other's back and it wasn't as cutthroat. And somebody says Atlanta um, and maybe someone maybe even says New York, whatever. There's a couple other places mentioned. Was the Boston scene around that time, was it like that, or was it more cutthroat? Or uh, like- it was definitely... I wouldn't say cutthroat, because, like, 
Um, I mean, maybe catty when someone gets like an amazing record deal and you're like, oh, that, that jerk. Right. Um, but, <laughs> but for the most part, no, it was like, it was, it was like everyone was friends. Everyone was going to each other's shows. It was definitely different. I mean, I know Boston has, it has a scene now and it's probably, it probably is similar. I'm just too old to like kind of know how it works these days. Um, to like right. to live to it the way it, that right. people yeah. live it. but but at the time yeah it was like you know I I would go to I mean at the time it was like TT the Bears and the Middle East were the two clubs and you would go there and you would know every single person in in the place it was it was totally you know just how you would socialize do you like does the memories of that are they like romantic to you do you like think back to that time and like think it was special or like how does it uh, yeah, sit with I mean, you now? It's definitely one of the one of the more you know exciting times. I mean, it's the thing I think is interesting. You know, just in retrospect, is you know you have no money and you're just like this basically starving artist, but yet you're going out every night and whatever, and then you make all this money and and uh, not from music, just from like working a job, right? Just, your shoot job. I don't know. <laughs> But it's just like changes, you know? I don't know. It's, right. it's weird. Did, we were talking about those beginning times and you said you were all in. Was there a moment where you thought, okay, this is a little bit different than that band that broke up? Or did, was there a moment where you said, I have something here. Like this is, this is, this can be what I dreamed of. Like this is that mix or, you know, was it, I mean. No, no, not really because, uh, I don't know. I think it's hard for me because I mean, I was, I was a singer and songwriter for both bands. Um, I mean, I feel like, you know, in Sheila Divine, it felt better just because uh, the people that were in the band were more not supportive, but more, were more into just like sort of bringing my songs to life, I guess, whereas the other one, it was a little bit more friction, but um but again, I don't know. And then, I mean, I feel like Dear Leader was the first band I played in where, like, you know, like where it just felt like from a persona standpoint, like it was it was really like connected for me. Well, I mean, there's no doubt, right, that you are the Sheila Divine. Like, like. Yeah. And I'm not and I don't mean to like. No. Uh, discount lesson, anyone. I mean, right. Like, I mean, Jim wrote home. And if, if you're I mean that that baseline that song doesn't exist without that right. so um and you know and even Sean on New Parade like he's not he wasn't like you know from a technical standpoint he's not a very good drummer but he has a very distinct sound and you know so all of those components are necessary to have have that band have that sound like there's bands like Paige Hamilton is helmet right like right it, it almost doesn't matter who's surrounding it to a, to a point but Eddie Trunk talks about how him and his – he'll sit at the rainbow with, like, Morello and other guys, and they'll play this game where they say MVP, LVP of a band, right? And obviously, anytime you talk about the Shield Divine, you're the MVP. But, like, Jim is, is very – is someone – people who love the band love Jim too, right? Like, he's <laughs> – Yeah, because yes. he's, he's, like, the per- – he's the, you know, the character of the band. He's right. the – um, you know, he's the Keith Moon or whatever. 
good. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Like there, there's something and um like with uh Matt, the Matthew Good band. Like Matthew Good was the Matthew Good band, but you know Dave, the guitar player Dave, he was someone that like you miss him and you know like Matthew Good still makes records, but if Dave was ever back, it'd be the Matthew Good band again cuz those two guys together. But um uh, where was I going with that? What was I thinking of? No, I guess we were just kind of talking about, you know. Yeah. Yeah, the Sheila Divine becoming like a a thing with a record and what about recording that first record? Um and that uh, was I mean I'm very I'm very romantic about that. That okay. was like amazing cause, Tell me. because it was like well, it was like my first I mean I had been in a recording studio before but never I mean it was always just like you have, you know, 7 hours to record all your songs. Go. Um, and this was the first time where, like, we had, you know, whatever, a, a gigantic budget. I mean, retro, like, Relative, it wasn't, like, huge. Right, like, right. But, but yeah, yeah, but it was, but still, it was, like, we were in the studio for, like, a month. And it was just, like, we lived the record. Like, we just, like, that's what we did for a living was, like, make those songs. So that was, like, amazing. I've, and I've never had, I've never been able to do that since then. So where I could just, like, not worry about their aspects of my life just be like nope this is what i'm doing who produced doom parade did you did you guys do it or uh, was there a... uh, it's brian who's my guitarist okay now. all right was what was brian's role like because you talk about it being the first time like was brian saying like i think the lyrics need to be stronger here because they're your songs is that the first time someone was pushing back never on that your song? never that no it wasn't a collaboration but, that way but i will say he is he is like sort of my like over the, over the years he's been my musical collaborator and knows me the best he's recorded like almost all my records i mean he didn't do the dear leader ones but he did you know he's done the every Sheila Devine record and um yeah he's sort of my gut check on everything this so, is Brian and Charles and I am right? him. yeah yeah okay um i mean he did the last one too uh but yeah, I mean, he we we push each other to be honest, and that's why it's like a good like he's like kind of a pop guy, so he always looks at everything through this sort of like Beatles lens. Okay. And then I always want I always want something to sound more um, extreme and like Sonic Youth and like <laughs> distorted and like vocals buried, and so you know we just have to fight each other to get our get the sounds we want to make out. So the first record's a masterpiece, in my opinion. It's one of the my favorite records of that era, that decade, whatever you want to say. And um, but I want to ask you about this because I like the other records too, right? Like I never dropped off, so I love the second record. And like I know I told you, I just got the last one, and you know the EPs and everything in between. So like I never dropped off. So like if I came to a show, I you know might say like, oh, play, you know. A deep cut on the second record or something, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Where there's this other segment of the of the fan base, right? That they live and die by that first record. Does that? Sure. Does that? Like, I was watching the live stream the other night, right? And I was just watching the songs that were, <laughs> you know, being requested, you know. And it's like, and it's all new parade, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just thinking, like, um, you know, what's your react? Like, how does that sit for you? Because I know I've heard over over the years, you know, like. If there's a band who's like a one-hit wonder or something, you know, some people will say, I'm so sick of that song and I want to play it. Or, oh, that song built me a mansion. I love it. I'll play it any time. You know, there's like different right. feelings about it. Like, what's your relationship with New Parade and the songs on it? Um, I mean, I don't have a hate for 
for it just because, I mean, it's it's so ingrained into my brain. Like, I, I feel like I could play any of those songs at any point. Like, uh, it's just sort of the one that, you know, we toured the hardest on. And, and uh, I don't know, it's, you know, ha- I always say you have your whole life to write your first record. And then after that, right? You get, then, then it's like whatever the time between that record and the next record. Um, so... Yeah, I don't know. I don't have any problem with it. And I mean, people do do love it. I mean, I've always, I will say like this newest record um, is, I'm really proud of it in that like, it's probably the first time in a couple records where I was like, I like actually connected with the songs like in a very big way. I don't know. It's, it's like, you know, I've, I've been writing songs I have a billion songs and I've, it's probably, I think it's my 11th album or something, but like this one, there's something magical about it and we really took our time to like record it. So I, I'm, I'm loving that one as well. Yeah. The beginning of the end is where we'll start is what it's called, by the way. Um, yeah. Yes. And my daughter will tell you track six. It's just, just a number is, <laughs> is where it's at. We'll get to that. Let me ask you about some of these All songs right. on new parade. Cause that's where we were. Sure. Let's talk about some of the songs. Uh, the first one I heard for sure was Hum. Um, I know yep. that for a fact. The, ra- the radio single. Right. You know, that, that's okay. what they spent, spent money on. So. Yeah. Um, what about Hum? When just, I mean, what do you think of when you think of Hum? Well, that one was actually, we had made the record. Um, and they're like, we need a single, you know, the usual back in the day thing. And then I went and we wrote that song and made it. And, uh, yeah, that's all I think about it. So you wrote that one to be a single, like that was your, your goal. Kind of like, they were like, you need to write a hit. And then that was my attempt at writing a hit, I guess. Worked. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't remember like, like, writing the lyrics or anything or like whatever, but it's, you know, it's definitely one of our most popular songs. So. I, I'm going to talk to you about every year in a few minutes, but I bring it up now. <laughs> I bring it up now just real quick. Cause we were having a conversation that you didn't realize we were having together on social media a little bit, a little while back. And you were talking about not having the connection to that one lyrically. And we'll get to that. I want to talk about that, yeah. that one soon, but I bring it up only because I wonder about your connection to, hum as it being the song you have to maybe play play almost every, like i guess if you didn't play that one and you walked out of the club everyone would probably say well why didn't they play hum uh, but yeah what's your relationship with it in that sense like with your connection to it it's- uh i don't hate it and i also like the way i've like been able to connect with it now is that you know the middle section i always do kind of something i learned from the band echo and the bunny man which is i just do this medley of random songs that come into my head or, you know, or I'll just like that day and I'll, and I just try to incorporate whatever I'm feeling at the time into the middle. And that makes it very fun for me. So it'll be like, you know, one day I'll just do like a tribute to guns and roses and do all guns and roses songs, or I'll do like punk songs or whatever, but that makes it super (laughs) fun for me. (laughs) I, uh, I have a thing where I, every time, the Toronto Maple Leafs are eliminated. They can't win the cup anymore. I, li- <laughs> yeah. I I listen to like whatever day that is. Like if they're eliminated from the playoffs 
or uh, you know they're un- they're not going to be able to make them. Whatever that day is, that moment happens. They're not going to win it. I listened to Fifty Mission Cap, and the reason is because whenever I would go to hip shows and they would play that, all the Toronto people would like scream and cheer when he said uh, the Leafs <laughs> won the cup, and uh, and then like me and my friends was like dorky people at the show we would anytime they would play this song called putting down he he mentions buffalo oh and then oh he mentions united states and putting down and then uh, in um uh with that hundredth meridian he says uh buffalo yeah. We, you know, right, right. yeah so then we would cheer at that it was like this thing so like i always uh would as a um as like a thumbing my nose to our rival i would always i always play that song like as soon as they're out and I cheer in my house like ah they're not gonna win the cup again. It's been since nineteen sixty seven, you losers. But um <laughs> but because of that, I'm very uh maybe a long way to get to this. I, automatic Buffalo, like when there's a song and Buffalo's in it, I'm just like yeah. in tune to that. You know, and I think the origin of it is is in those those memories of the hip, but um yeah, I I, I love it and one of my favorite parts of any Sheila Divine song is uh, when you say, but if I walk out and if I walk out, then it's say la vie will be history. I love that part. Um, whenever, sure. sometimes when I listen, if I have my phone in my hand, I'll like go back and back like four or five times, but it's definitely okay. not, not a joyous picture of Buffalo, right? Here. Sure. Right? But you know, but I also <laughs> feel like, but it's still like, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's I still have like this sort of, I mean, I, at the time, you know, you're 22, you, you're like miserable. I don't know. Most kids are miserable when they're 22. So I feel that's yeah. like, that, that's when I wrote it. So that's kind of like, you know, that's, that's the, the vision I had at the time. So. Do you have a favorite song on New Parade? Um, well, I mean, I would say like, new, uh, I would say Automatic Buffalo is probably, you know, our anthem, like that, that was always like what we closed like right. every show with. So kind of, that's probably my favorite. Um, you know, I like space milk a lot as well. So. I don't, do you care what mine is? No, no, what is it? <laughs> it's I'm a believer probably. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Although maybe it changes, you know, maybe I get in a, I like space milk a lot too. And obviously yeah. I love automatic think, Buffalo. Believers. A, that's a barn burner. Yeah. So, that's uh, I think that's one that just jumps out live too. And um, you thought it was gonna suck acoustic, but I thought it was pretty great the other night on that. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, Thanks. I really enjoyed that. So, okay, so you you write a great record, right? And you sure. Yeah. So then, so okay, so Jack Black in the um, Rush documentary, he has this brilliant thing I always think of where he talks about each band is like a bottle of ketchup. And they tip the bottle over when they start. And some bands, they only got enough ketchup for one song or one album or some two <laughs> or some three. And his point is, like, that Rush has had this, like, an incredible bottle of ketchup and all these records. So so you write that first record and you guys tip your bottle of ketchup over. And when you start the second record, the one you didn't have your whole life to write, what was uh, what was it like for you? That I guess that's a unique experience for the first time then. Um, well, I mean, the thing is, like, I had been in bands before, Sheila Divine, so I had already written probably 40, so- 40 or 50 songs sure. before yeah. Super Aid. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I think the pressure was just, when you're on a label, is you have to follow it up or you get dropped, and we got dropped. 
Um, so it kind of, you know, but I, I didn't really feel like the pressure to write it. it I, but I, I have a hard time connecting with a lot of that album for some reason. And I don't know why I just like, there's, I, I don't really listen to it very often. And, um, and it's just, I don't, there's, you know, I think Countryman, when I look like, listen to that song, I'm like, it's crazy how sometimes the lyrics are just so, um, like, so apropos to like the times you're living in and that's always interesting but beyond that like i don't know that's probably one of the only songs i listened to on that album well i remember being at a show and obviously this record had come out so you're playing songs from it and you got to a point and you're like oh man every year's next should we just skip it and everyone's like <laughs> no you know like and then you played it, and then after you kind of turned away or something, and you kind of mumbled, like, ah, it sucks or something. So I always just had in my mind, like, oh, Aaron doesn't really like every year. And then I asked you about it, like, on Instagram yeah. or something. You were taking questions, and you, <laughs> you confirmed that, and then other people kind of jumped in and were like, what? Like, how dare you? Uh, we like that one. No, I know. People, yeah. people like that one. Yeah. Uh, and you were talking about you just don't connect to it. So I'm like, all right. Let me read these. But I don't really connect to most of that album, to be honest. So it's not it's not necessarily that song uh, versus just, like, people are like, play Sideways. I'm like, I haven't played that song in, like, you know, 15 years. <laughs> right. Which is too bad. It's great. Like, I love this, like, you're talking about, like, oh, first versus second. I love this one just as much as the second. There's a lot of songs. Like, I love Walking Dead, and I love... That um, one I like. Yeah. I do like that one actually. I love the last like minute and a half. Like that's another thing where I'll finish and go back like two minutes and because I just love that last that last part of that song. And I love um, Sideways and I love Every Year and Ostrich. I like a lot. I think that's kind of underrated. But no, anyway, about um, Every Year. I, so I was like, well, I gotta read these lyrics. Like, what? Why doesn't he connect to him? And I'm reading them and I'm like, well, I don't know Aaron enough to know why he doesn't connect to him. But I thought when I, I was asking you here, like, so it seemed like already in 2001-ish you weren't really connecting with him. Like, but then I was like, but he wrote him. It's not like he's Getty Lee and Neil Peart wrote him. Like, what do you think it is about this yeah. song? Yeah. Hey, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I, just don't, I just don't remember. I don't remember, like, writing half of those songs. So it was, I don't know. I It's, it's a weird, it's just weird. Was that like a mushroom phase or like, was it just, <laughs> no, I, I we've just no, gotten old? I wish it was. Yeah, you wish it was. <laughs> no, I, I, it's just like, it's as, as time goes on and I just haven't really gone back. I mean, obviously we played a lot of those songs while I was still touring, but like, like since we like initially broke up, it just never kind of went back to it. And so it's just as time has gone on and I've had other bands and done things, it's just kind of, I don't know. So you're saying I should stop it's holding weird. my breath for the uh, front to back? Where have my countrymen gone to her? I mean, we should we should le- relearn some of those songs, but um, but now that the band is only basically me and Brian, it's going to be going to be even more doubtful that we'd go back to that. So Jim is done, done. No chance of Jim. No chance of Jim. He's done forever. Um, no, no drama. No, no drama. Nothing. He's just. just just he he lives on cape cod he just got married um and he's just enjoying his like he just doesn't want to doesn't really want to play music or at least with me but if he wakes up six years from now and says you know what i want to again there's a there could be a conversation there 
Sure. There sure. Could okay. Be. Yeah. Not to like create like a unnecessary hope or whatever. I'm just like, yeah. Just to no, understand yeah, a little I, bit better. I, yeah. I think I think it's you know he's just like I'm. I've twenty years is a good amount of time. He like I mean he told me like based almost a year in advance. He's just like this is the last year I want to do this and like let's just cap it at that and then he's like and then you can do whatever you want and so i'm gonna continue with it but um yeah realizing that it's a different thing but it's i'm you know i just feel like if i rename the band something else it's still gonna be aaron from the sheila divine so i might as well just do sheila divine and there's equity in the name and the logo right i mean yeah that's what i mean like i mean i've done so much work under it that it's just to me seems dumb to start something else before we get past this record like what do you i know you do play every year once in a while what else do you play from this though do you play any you said you don't play much is there anything besides that uh we play we play walking dead i'll play countrymen um i mean we have done ostrich but we don't as often um that's i guess that's about it let's talk about the singing for a second because you talk about ostrich which i gotta figure is not that easy to sing um, maybe it is. I don't right. know anything about singing, but when I listen to it, it strikes me as one that might be difficult. Um, so anyone who likes this band, one of the big reasons they like it is because of the way you sing. I mean, it's unique. It's, I mean, the only thing I compare you to a little bit, I mentioned Helmut before, but there's something about Paige Hamilton. I don't know if you I mean, maybe you like him, maybe you don't, but the records, sometimes he's, I don't know if screaming is the right word, but he's gro- growling maybe. And then sometimes he's just kind of singing and you're kind of like that where sometimes you're singing more melodically and then sometimes and then you go up to that 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 other that other part of the way you sing tell me a little bit about your style and what it's like on your voice and how you train for it just tell me a little bit about the singing like the mechanics of it or whatever yeah Yeah. because i don't know i mean it's yeah i mean either do i really uh (laughs) i mean i you know i always love like for me it was like Nirvana and then like the Pixies were like the two bands that like that quiet to loud sort of thing was always what I liked back in the day. So that sort of started it. Um, but you know, I listened to a lot of pop music as a kid. Um, and yeah, it just sort of evolved from me, like initially singing like, um, Ian Curtis from joy division, like in this, like, kind of monotone, whatever. And then, you know, trying to do my, my version of punk rock. Uh, but yeah, it's in, in, I will say in the early days, like touring when it was like, you know, when you do like six shows in a week, I would blow out my voice. I had to go on like steroids a couple of times to be able to like get through a tour. Um, or something. Not, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it was definitely... And then I took opera lessons during Countryman era, um, like, to learn how to, like, not blow out my voice. So that's probably why songs like Wanting is Wasted or Monarchs, where it was kind of these, uh, like, kind of things that was probably inspired by that. Um, and then the falsetto was something that, like, you know, Brian, like, was like, why don't you try this? And you know, I did that. And so I've always just tried to like do different things in my voice and see how far I could take it. Is there a song that like, I know, sorry about making all these comparisons, but just trying to put, put a reference. I don't know music that well, but like, I know Pearl Jam, whenever they played blood, they played at the end. Cause I know that's one that will torch the voice. Is there one that 
tor- yeah. torches you out. And then there's is there one that when you're feeling a little bit like that, you can lean on that one? Like this is a little bit easier to sing, give myself a few minutes or is there, is there anything uh, like There's that? just a few that, that are hard. Uh, age is just the numbers really hard. I don't know why. I think it's just sort of the amount of breaths and the amount I have to push to make it happen okay. that is challenging. Um, you know, like hum's not really that hard to sing, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I think, I think there's, there's a, some dear leader songs that were like really challenging. I can't remember offhand, but, um, yeah, I don't know. The ones where I'm like screaming full on, like, you know, where it sounds like it's a cry for help. Those are usually kind of hard. Yeah. Do you, um, I think back to the, so it's Oh three, right? The funeral shows. Or the shows that eventually uh, became a DVD called Funeral. Is that 03? Sounds, sounds about right. Yeah. Um, three, three, three sounds right. Why? Just, why what? Why, like, why did it end then? Was there, did it just feel done or? Well, we had, we had, I, I mean, it's weird, but like we, we had toured like harder than we had ever done. We went to China, we did a Europe tour, and then we did a full like US tour. So it was like kind of, we were sick of each other. We were poor as hell. You could kind of see, we weren't on a label and you could kind of feel that the momentum was kind of on a downward spiral. Um, and we got into a huge fight on tour, like Jim and I, it's like kind of, it's comedy basically like spinal tap, but it was in Milwaukee and we, please like, he was, there was like nobody at the show and he was trying to get me excited. Cause I was like, not, not having a great time. And he like bumped into me to like get me going. And like my face hit the mic and like my lips started bleeding. Oh, and no. so I just like, I dropped my guitar and I was like, I'm done. And then we got into like a physical altercation. No, oh, no. punches were thrown, but like <laughs> we choked each other on stage and it was like so hilarious. And so then basically we left there and we went to a Bennigan's uh, oh, I miss and we, yeah. and we just started like laughing uncontrollably at how like stupid it was. And then Colin was like, I'm done. Like you guys are jokes. And, uh, and like, that was kind of it. Like, but then we were like, no one was mad. We just sort of like did the rest of the tour, um, came home and we were just like, yeah, we're like, I think this is it. And so then we just, plan the final shows yeah and i looked it up there called april, it a day april of 2003 um yeah you got any of those funeral dvds laying around probably yeah okay. i actually i know i do right. so, i'll buy one get it out of my house <laughs> uh so then 2005 you played a show a reunion show in boston and a few shows why did yeah, and then it ramp back up was it just time again yeah, it's just time. Like, yeah. I mean, again, we were like, we weren't like, it wasn't like we were sworn enemies or anything. Like it was just sort of like at the time, you know, you put your heart into something and give it everything. And then when it doesn't, when your dream doesn't come true, you kind of have resentment of like, oh, it's it's these fools or whatever. And then, you know, time passes, you're like, oh, we should do something. And, you know, then it started back up. Do you feel that way so, that your dream didn't come true? Cause here I'm, cause I'm on the other end thinking like, this career is a dream come true. I, but maybe the, but like you know, I just know about, I just know the records and the shows. You know, like to me that's a dream come true. So maybe there's, there's more to it, the lifestyle and things like that. And I'm just disconnected from that. Well, 
you know. It's just sort of, you know, we, I'm, I'm an artist, so like I'll always make records, but I, you know, I can't do it for a living, like, cause it just, we're not, it's not physically possible or like financially possible. So in that case, you know, when you wanted it to be your like life and you couldn't really make it do it, that's when I, what I mean by like the dream okay. didn't come true. But, you know, for a while it was, I mean, it, you know, we were on a label for a while and it was amazing, but it's just, we weren't able to sustain it in a way that we could do it for our real job. Do you think one of the problems was that you were on a label and that kind of got bought up by Roadrunner, right? And when I think of Roadrunner, I think of like typo negative and life of agony. Um, yeah. Do you think it was just bad luck that it was Roadrunner and maybe they didn't get it or it just wasn't a fit with, you know, like I said, I think of life in agony and, um, there's a lot of, a lot of factors. They were really into the record to be honest. So it was like, we got a shot, but it's also timing, you know, like when we came out, the bands that were on the radio were System of a Down, Limp right, Bizkit, new metal. Yeah, the new like, metal era, right? It, yeah. Which is what Roadrunner does. Right. So, you know, like, so it was even weird that we got a, sh- a shot, like, because that's like their heyday of like when their, you know, Cookie Monster Rock was like big. Um, but, you know, if it was, if, if it had been three years later when New Parade came out, we would have been successful because then it was, the Strokes and all of those bands, Interpol and all the bands that we would have fit right in. We were, White it was like we were all of that, yeah, like just killers, that, that, that kind yeah. of New York. Yeah, yeah. like it, it was like we were a couple years too late. So, or, right. you know, too early. Right. So. You you were a grunge band. You showed up in Seattle and it was not 1991, right? right? Like, yeah, for like a. Sure. Um, so, oh, those, yeah. those are the things. What? So. Like in wrestling, like I don't know, I'm some, I'm kind of a wrestling mark. People will, they'll say like, okay, so my shoot job, like the thing I, it's that's a shoot. The thing I do to like really is this, and then my work, you know, the, the other thing I do is I wrestle, and it's fun and awesome. Like this podcast is, yeah. is not my shoot job. Like, what's your shoot job, quote unquote? Like you say that. Well, I, when I quit, when I kind of quit doing music as a living, uh, I fell into the advertising world. So. um yeah, it's kind of that's kind of been my job, like digital marketing, and okay. not, um, I'm actually unemployed right now, so it's kind oh. of scary times. Right. Well, yeah, it's but, a crazy um, time in general right now. Sure. Exactly. Right. But uh, but yeah, normally it was you know I work in ad agencies. Is that, can you take that, anything from that and to 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 music? Like, is there you know the way you market your music, or is there anything you've learned there that you can bring to the other side of your life? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's, you know, you, when you're in a band, your whole job is selling yourself. Like, cause, you know, the one thing I think to be a successful musician, you have to believe that you're the, the shit. Like, like that's the only way you, like, you can get other people to believe it. So, and it, I think it's, you know, when you're young and dumb, it's easy to be, to do that. But the older you get, the more, like, <laughs> the harder it is to, like, you know, I'm like, I've been doing these, like, uh, you know, living room live stream shows just because I'm bored and it's like fun, but I do feel like very self conscious about it. <laughs> They've been great. Uh, let me ask you this because we're talking about the music business. I had Eddie Trunk on last time we were talking about this. So when when you and I started buying records when we were young whippersnappers, I think the first CD I bought with my own money was the first Skid Row record. 
Um, oh, nice. Yeah, which I, I don't feel too bad about. I like. I actually love Sebastian Bach. I think he's. Pretty, no, they're kind of yeah. cool. They're yeah. kind of cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. Sebastian Bach is kind of really cool. The other guys, uh, Rachel Bull and those guys are jabronis. But um, back then when we were buying records, I mean, it was the the music business was you make a record, and then you tour to support the record, right? Where yeah. now, in twenty twenty. Some bands are like, you make why the fuck would I make on... a record? Yeah, like what? It's... Yeah, you make a song, you put it on SoundCloud, yeah. and then a billion people go, dude, that's hype, and then you get a face tattoo, and then you're <laughs> famous. <laughs> but the money... <laughs> and you're... <laughs> that's funny. The money in rock, right, is in touring. Like, you got to be on the road. And I just wonder, is, this, Absolutely. is it better for the Sheila Divine, worse for the Sheila Divine? Like... Like maybe the question is, where do you think the Shield Divine fits into the business of music in 2020? Uh, there. I mean, I don't really think of it as a business. We we play like ten shows a year, um, you know, and I try to do shows that pay for themselves at least, so okay. that you know. <laughs> but I I wouldn't say that I'm like banking money doing this. You know, in Belgium we do pretty well, but. You know, it's still like, you know, ooh, I made a couple thousand dollars this year. So, right. um, What about social media and the role? Anything there? Like, have you... I do think, I mean, I don't, I'm not like capitalizing on it, but like I do, like I will say like the other night when I played, I didn't really have any expectations. But then like when I looked at the metrics after the show, after I played, it was like 7,000 views and 1,000 comments and 78 shares. And I was like, oh, that's pretty good. That's like better. That's better than going on tour and playing to like 20 people in, you know, Minneapolis. Right. Especially so. unannounced. I mean, that first one for sure. I mean, I just yeah, happened to open so, my phone and, then and I was like, these guys are playing. Technical difficulties last night. So. Damn technical difficulties. You know, I think I listen to you and you're, I feel like you're a lot like me in the sense that. I do this show and people tell me it's good and I definitely have self-doubt that it is, but people tell me it is, but I have no idea how to make that matter. You know what I mean? And, and the things that yeah. people, the things that people tell me to do to, I don't even want to do those things. You know what I mean? Like I don't want to go and yeah, like I'm terrible. You know, like I will say like I'm terrible at like selling like, so am I. like, yeah merch and albums and all that like like you know this latest record we have this awesome guy in belgium who has a like a small record label but it's like you know a passion project he's like you or i like he, you know he's like i want to like make some records and uh it's not about money it's about like just doing something cool and but i'm like you know, people are like ordering this thing. I'm like, oh my god! Like, I gotta like mail out like 350 vinyls. Like, this is the biggest pain in the ass ever. Like, <laughs> like do you know what it's like going to the like to the post office with 300 albums and being like, I need to mail all these boxes out. Like, everyone in line's like swearing at you, and it's like it's like the worst. It's the worst. I'm like having an anxiety attack. I could like, totally relate thinking. to that because you know I told you we do this dorky <laughs> book club. And like the the, yeah. the book companies will like send me sometimes like four or five copies, so I give them away to people. And then they, when I have their addresses, I'm like immediately regretting that I offered to give these away. Like I'm like I should have just not given them away because the 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 book people don't follow up; they don't give a shit. You know what I mean? Like, but then yeah. I have to, you know, I have to 
find a box for him. I have to package him. I have to take him down to the yeah. post office. I don't even know when the hell the thing's open. You know, half the time I get there and they closed somehow five minutes before I arrived every single time. You know what I mean? It's, it's the like, worst. Yeah, you so, gotta be kidding I'm like, me. I'd rather not. Just like, if you want the music, just like, you can you can have it. I'll just send you a file. It's like, I am one of those pains so. in the asses, though, that does still like to own CDs, especially of bands. Yeah, that, no, yeah. and I, it's, I'm trying to be better about it and I'm trying to like, I, I will say I'm like a little bit more motivated than I have been in years just because I liked this album. And so I was like, I'm going to make merch. I'm going to do this. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to see how big I can do it with still having, you know, children and uh, responsibilities and stuff like that. So I, I will let you go soon. I promise, but I don't want to let you go. Cause we got to talk about the new record for a few minutes. Cause I love it. I told you on the, DMs or whatever that age of just a number if anyone asks me what was your favorite song of 2019 I always tell them that and I think it's Love really, it. really great and um, my daughter sang a few bars of age is just a number so even the three year olds <laughs> very like cute it. right so uh, what about what about this one was different because I can feel your enthusiasm for it so what about it uh, I don't well I I think um like I've job wise, I've, I've had like a rough go, um, the past like year, I'd say, or two years. Um, just, I had, I was on this like crazy trajectory job wise where, you know, I got to like, I was like, you know, the global vice president of, of, uh, you know, digital and like, and the job like had a layoff and then I just had a lot of free time. So I just started, you know, I had the time to like write songs and it, it had been like the first time in ages where I could just sit down during the day and like, you know, make coffee and then like write songs. And so it was just, you know, having the time, I guess is what, that's the difference. Let's talk about some of the songs. So I'm going to tell you the first thing I did when I opened this record, I said, I have to listen to summer of 93 to see if he makes a fingers bleed reference. It's cause I thought that would be funny. Um, and then like, Kurt Cobain stood out just the title of it. You've mentioned Nirvana already a few, sure. a few times. And, you know, there's there's this, like, now catalog of songs that are either about Kurt Cobain or people think they're about Kurt Cobain, like Pearl Jam's Immortality. People think it was somehow written about the death of Kurt Cobain because they mentioned a cigar box. But, like, Vitality huh. came out, like, basically simultaneously. It's impossible, I guess what I'm trying to say. So it's right. not. But there's, in the culture, there's, like, this – that's a thing. Like, right? There's this – you could probably find a playlist of songs about Kurt Cobain, and you have one now. What about that song? Uh, I mean, honestly, I was like lying in bed, and like when you first wake up, and I just that like line, what would Kurt say if you were alive today came into my head, and then I like got up and wrote it like in you know an hour. Was there anything specific so, you were thinking about specifically, like something you've seen on the TV or a headline on your phone or something? Or just no, I think just it's general. just 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 uh, you know, magic or whatever. But uh, I don't know. It's funny. So then I was just like, tried to imagine what what like how depressing it would be if you were making albums today. Well, you know, as like a rich ball dude. It's it's funny because I I'm a huge Pearl Jam guy, um, and sure. I got I got the I new I got the new record in the mail today, right? And um, yeah. I was looking at it at the kitchen table um, and I was just kind of thinking like that it was a blessing to have it. And maybe that's a little dramatic, but 
we're bored. You know what I mean? But like I, in that yeah. moment, I was like, this is a blessing. Like, and I was thinking about the bands I loved about Alice in Chains and about Nirvana and Soundgarden and Stone Temple Pilots and even bands I didn't love, but they're not here anymore. They're not making records anymore or bands that I love because my dad loved them like Rush or, um, you know, and it's just, it's not, there's uh, it's, no matter how many times I go to the mailbox, there isn't going to be a new and I thought about Kurt Cobain. Never mind, there's not going to be a new Nirvana record. And there was only, you know what, Bleach and um, yeah, the big one and uh, the last one and then the green one. Um, I should be better with names, but I'm terrible with them. Um, so I was thinking about that. And um, that made me think of them today. Just that, And like I said, I kind of – and I guess, you know, talking to you, like it's a blessing to have this Sheila Divine record in 2019 because, you know, some people don't even give a shit about making records. True. You know, like even like Candlebox, a band like I kind of like, you know, I, I like Candlebox and like they'll make records, but they sell everything. <laughs> like that guy is not, he's the opposite of us. Kevin Martin is not <laughs> afraid to sell shit. You can go on the Candlebox website. Yeah. If you pay enough, he will name the next record after you. And that's not even a joke. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. Uh, Aaron, this is too much time. I've taken too much of your time. Um, but this was oh, a pleasure and an honor. I hope I, I know I just babble on and on and ask dumb questions, but I appreciate, I really do appreciate that. You, you wanted to talk sports for a few minutes. Is there anything you want to get off your chest? Oh, sports just, wise? It, it's, it's, it's a sports podcast, you know, it's like, you know, are you psyched about getting uh Stefan Diggs? All right. So I'm going to tell you a dirty secret. So when I was five years old, six years old, I cared about two things in life Two. that's it. The Sabres and wrestling. It's all I cared about in my life. I cared about the Sabres and wrestling. So this one day, you don't, you're not, you're not a Bills. Okay, but listen, listen to me. So this one day, I woke up, and the Sabres were playing the Minnesota North Stars in a preseason action in Minnesota, radio only. Okay, and in my mind, I thought the whole ta- the whole family was going to crowd around the radio in my room with the four batteries in the back. Uh, and listen to the Sabres game on the radio. And my dad was like, you fucking crazy? The Bills are playing the Dolphins. I'm not listening. You know, like, what What are you, nuts? You know, like, go in your room and listen to that. So I hated the Bills. I came out of my room, and Jerry Butler, the Bills receiver, was laying in the end zone. His leg was snapped from his body. It's the last game he's ever, he's ever going to play. And I was so happy he was hurt. You know, because I was a little kid. I, I didn't understand. But I was so glad. Like, that serves you right, Bills. That guy's getting carted out of here. And I hated the Bills. And I hated football. And then my dad one day said, will you please just watch a football game with me? And I said, fine. And it was the playoffs. And it was the Saints and the Vikings. It was 1987. It was a strike-shortened season. And um, the Saints coach at the time was Jim Mora. And, you know, he's an Italian guy. He looked just like my grandfather. And the Superdome. Looked, oh, I know that guy. Yeah, the Superdome looked beautiful. And, the you know, that the way the green turf looked back when it was that artificial turf. and Astro, the, Yeah, yeah the, the Astro turf, right? And the gold. And so everything about him. My dad's telling me, like, these guys have sucked. They were in the league since 1967. They never made the playoffs. It's the first time they ever ran out a winning record. You know, he's telling me about Archie Manning, how they ruined his life. Their fans wore bags, and I'm like, wow, really? He's like, yeah, they get – the Vikings get a field goal, and the Saints score a touchdown, and the Superdome's going nuts. I'm like, this is unbelievable. Football's awesome. I didn't know football was awesome. 
And the Saints lost that game 44 to 10. And I watched till the bitter end every Vikings touchdown. I watched people. I watched the crowd. I, Summerall and uh, Madden. So you're were, a Vikings fan. No, a Saints fan. A Saints fan. Oh, Saints. <laughs> they, right. they died that day, and I died with them. And, I mean, I haven't missed a Saints game since 1996. I went. To a game, this, okay. went to a game this year, but so you're yeah. psyched about Drew Brees? Oh and, uh, my God, he's my he's my he's made all my dreams. He's, your Tom, a, he's my I mean, he's all my Tom dreams. Brady. All my dreams as a sports fan have come true because of him. You know what I mean? Everything I want, right. everything I would say, like just let this happen once for me. It happened because of him. All right. My other sports question is: Are you are you enjoying wrestling without a crowd? Ugh. Um. There is. Some, and have you seen the? Have yeah. you seen the videos of them playing the Twin Peaks music with that? Yes, that's that is hilarious. Like I want to like it because I used to like I like studio wrestling. Like in theory, here's the thing though. I made this decision a few years ago. It was after one of the WrestleManias. I didn't like it. I was getting into this habit. That's a thing in the the wrestle the wrestling internet community where you just hate everything. And yep. I said, look, it, I have this many hours to watch wrestling in a week, whatever it is, four or five, whatever, how many hours I'm going to watch it. Why do I spend it watching something I don't like? The, in 2020, I can watch any wrestling match almost ever held in a ring that's on film. I don't need this. Yep. You know, so like the last few years I've been watching like what I love, you know, WrestleMania three, that era, the golden age as it's called. WWF. All right. I, that was that was my era. Yeah, so. and that and my daughter, we watch together, and she wants me to take her to the matches, but it breaks my heart because she wants to go because she wants Bret Hart to give her his glasses, and she wants to see <laughs> the Macho Man and Elizabeth. You know, and I don't know how to tell have her, you, like, honey, they're dead. You know, I, I, I don't know how to say yeah. that to her. You know, so I just say, yeah, we'll go. You know what I mean? Like, have you watched the Vice series um, Beyond the Match? Yes, I watched all of season one. I thought that's, it was brilliant, the, and I'm excited to see the really Benoit good. one. Yeah, did you? Because it debuted last night. Part season two. The new one? Yeah, season two was. Oh, uh, yeah. Have to check that out. They no, started no. with a two-hour uh, one on Chris Benoit. I do owe you an answer. An answer on Diggs is a brilliant move. I don't care what they paid. I don't care if people think it was think it was too much. They haven't won a playoff game since like 1995. I don't care about draft picks. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I think I think they're going to be. I think with Brady leaving, um, you know, Bill's chances are actually like good this this season. They so built, it should be interesting. They've built a good team. They have smart people. I like Bean. I believe in Bean. And I believe in um, the redheaded coach. Again, I'm terrible with names. People listen to the show. Yeah, I don't. Like, I don't. Don't you I know anyone's been a name? <laughs> fan for a, for a while. I mean, not that I'm not. I mean, I always root for them, but I mean, I've been a Pats fan like just because I've been in Boston because you're there, yeah, forever. Um, and it's been it's been amazing, like just to like you live know that yeah live that have, well just to have like twenty years of like, right. Tom Brady it's like it's just crazy. Um, so, but I'm also like I will say like him leaving. I'm like kind of I wasn't sad. I was like it's like it's about time. Like it's just kind of you get to the point where you don't even like you're like I like you don't even have to watch like division games because you're just like we're gonna win this division. Like it's it's boring. Did you get into so. like the Red Sox and their run at all, or for sure? Yeah, uh, I liked baseball for a couple of years. Um, I mean, that, that the first season they won like, two thousand four, you know, yeah. the, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, that was like you know I watched like every game. Like that was that was great. But I'm not I'm not really into baseball anymore. Um, yeah, I'm like a basketball and football, and then you know, and I watch AEW with my son. Yeah, well, I love what I love about AEW. 
and why I want it to work is because wrestling's better with competition. You know, it's just it's yeah, it's better when you know Vince McMahon can't think he just owns the world and owns all the wrestlers, and you know it's better when there's a reason to. But whatever. Listen, this was for me great. I appreciate it. I appreciate it all the time. I don't know what we agreed on originally. I have fun. But probably not an hour. Uh, this, it's all good. Let me. Uh, I'm. I'm. Let me, with it. let me promote some stuff. The band we've talked about mostly, obviously, The Sheila Divine. Uh, the new album is called Beginning of the End is Where We'll Start, which you can get on Bandcamp. Yep. is a good place to buy it. And then also, of course, you can, right. you can listen to it on you know Apple Music or um, Spotify. But I would say listen to it there and then make this guy go to the post office again. You know, Go and, uh, and buy, a rec- buy a record or a CD. I think we're actually sold, we're sold out, actually. So I, you can only buy it digitally right now. So. Okay, we'll buy it digitally buy it on Bandcamp so you can pay a little bit more than whatever they sell <laughs> it for right. on uh, iTunes. Because I don't think iTunes gives you that option, right? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know. Um, and then, of course, uh, there's the other records, too. What's the um, social and stuff? Like, where can people find out about the band? The Sheila Divine I mean, on Facebook, just, obviously. Yeah, if you just yeah. type the Sheila Divine, then a, a bunch of stuff pops up. Is there a um, Twitter? And yeah, and we should be. Uh, I don't. I'm more. My Twitter is Dear Leader, um, and that's. I, I can only do so many, you know, channels. So I, I just have my personal Twitter. And, okay. Uh, What's that? Yeah, but then I. Is that something Dear you Leader. want people to follow? Okay, at Dear Leader. Uh, yeah. Um, if you want to follow my um, total lib. Um, uh political rantings you can um otherwise you know just on facebook is where you find anything happening with the band um and then you know i think we got some buffalo shows coming up if they ever have they have shows yeah well yeah listen if they come up i i definitely will be there i was at the last few yeah we gotta we gotta hang and have a beer yeah i was at the last few at um what's that place called in the city Sportsman. Uh, yeah, the sportsman. My dad. My dad does sound yeah. for a band called Cock Robin. They're like a local band that uh. it's like really from like the seventies and eighties, but they play still. They do like you know, um, like yeah. like Deep Purple covers and shit like that. But um, they cool. play they play there all the time. And I went to a few of the Shield of Vine shows there. And um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to whatever oh. you do. And uh, and I will um absolutely buy one of those uh, funeral DVDs from you if you have it. I'm going to bug you about that on our right. um, DM I'm going to bring it, and I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> Sounds <No>. good. <laughs> All right, Aaron, thank you. So anything else you want to plug or anything else you want to say? No, that's, it. that's good. So thanks right. so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right, I want to thank Aaron Perino for being on the podcast. Don't forget, you can hear my interviews with Aaron and the great Scotty Bowman. This episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. And if you have the time, and some of us do during this pandemic... Maybe please give me a little bit of love on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. A five-star review there apparently is good for social proof. My friend Peter Winston tells me that from Greetings from Allentown. His pod at Jet 
GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. He's been doing a series where he talks about uh, TVs before the WrestleManias in three different decades. So he started with 86 before WrestleMania 2, an awesome episode he did about All-Star Wrestling. And then he went to the 90s, WrestleMania 10, an episode before that. And then he's going to do one from the 2000s uh, next week. Also, some news about Peter and I's podcast, the Adams Division podcast. The next episode is here. Uh, Peter will be posting it on Monday, and I believe Place to Be Nation will be posting it later in the week. It's a podcast of Peter's creation where we take WrestleMania 1 through 14 and make a classic WrestleMania card where we can only use each wrestler once and each belt once. So one Hulk Hogan match and one World Wrestling Federation Championship match, one Intercontinental match, 10 matches total, so four WrestleManias won't be included, 1 to 14. That will be a reality this week. Uh, I was able to preview it to uh, the great Hollywood Dave Rollins, and he gave it two thumbs up. So watch my Twitter feed, at sports underscore casters, and Peter's at GF Allentown Pod for more information on that. I mentioned last week our friend at JT Rosero, at JT the Pie Guy on Twitter. He's got a new thing, a quick plug for him. He reminds you to check out the new North-South Connection brought to you by JT Rosero and Chad Campbell. It's the new home for Wrestling Warzone, No Holds Barred, The Extreme Three-Way Dance, Jeff Learns Wrestling, and more. Information on social media at JT the Pie Guy on Twitter or North-South Connection on Facebook www.northsouthconnection.podbean or any podcatcher app to listen in. Uh, don't forget my friend Adrian Dater, coloradohockeynow.com, at Dater on Twitter for more information there. Shout out to my buds Bill McGrath, Fred Cass, all the super fans of the Sportscasters. Uh, thanks for being there with me during this time. Uh, the pandemic has meant more podcasts. Uh, which I guess is a good thing. And I've been trying to release them uh, on the weekend where less content is available uh, to give people something if they're looking uh, and low on content. All right, one last thing today. And I mentioned that we had Eddie Trunk on the podcast last week and uh, something that Eddie did on his podcast, or excuse me, his XM show, uh, not a podcast, was dedicate a whole show to top five lists. Now, back in the day, when Eddie was the host of that metal show uh, with Jim Florentine and Don Jameson, they would open every show with a top five, some category of rock. And uh, Eddie decided to revive the top five and started with debut albums. Top five debut albums. So I sent him my list. He was cool enough to read it on the air. But if you didn't hear it, I'm going to read it now, go through it, go through why I picked uh, each one and some that I left off. Start with number five, Bad Company, Bad Company, 1974. One of the great classic rock albums of all time. Of course, it wasn't classic rock when it was released, and it was just a, a badass album, and it, it still is to this day. If you look at the track listing on Bad Company, Bad Company, uh, I promise you that you will agree with me that this deserves consideration, if not on your list. Can't Get Enough, Rock Steady, Ready for Love, Don't Let Me Down, Bad Company, 
The Way I Choose, Moving On, and Seagull. Eight songs, what? Can't Get Enough, Rocksteady, Ready for Love, Bad Company, and in some places, Seagull all got radio play. That's five tracks. Moving On got radio play. I don't even know if I said Moving On. This album is awesome. 35 minutes, no clunkers, just a badass album. I put Bad Company, Bad Company at number five. Number four, Allison Chain's Facelift. Uh, many uh, have said it's it's the first the first grunge record, but forget run forget grunge. Uh, this is some awesome, you know, metal music, uh, hard rock. Uh, we die young, man in the box, CSRO. Not many albums start out as strong as those three tracks right there. Uh, really good uh, deep cuts like love, hate, love, and uh, real thing closes the album strong. Uh, a great record, uh, 1990 Allison Chains Facelift. Number three, Tool's Undertow. Uh, of course, Tool did have the EP, Opiate. That's not a full-length album. Uh, Undertow then, of course, is their first, 1993. Intolerance, Prison Sex, Sober, Bottom, Crawl Away, My Favorite Swamp Song, Undertow, Four Degrees, Flood, and Disgustipated. The album that made Tool, Tool. Uh, their breakout thing. Uh, Lie, Cheat, and Steal, Intolerance. Uh, love this record. Uh, it's one I've been listening to since you know 1994. When I started listening to Tool. And uh, still listen to it often to this day. Number two. Uh, Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction. I don't know that I need to go on all that long about Appetite, but, you know, when Appetite hit, it changed the game, and Guns N' Roses went from unknown to the biggest rock band in the world virtually overnight. You know, Appetite was that huge. It's one of the highest-selling albums of all time, and, um, again, it's an album with no Clunkers, Welcome to the Jungle, It's So Easy, Night Train, Out to Get Me, Mr. Brownstone, Paradise City, My Michelle, Think About You, Sweet Child O' Mine, You're Crazy, Anything Goes, Rocket Queen, 54 Minutes, Kick Ass, right from the beginning screams of Welcome to the Jungle, through the last notes of Rocket Queen, one of the great rock albums of all time. If you go to a Guns N' Roses show, they probably play 8, 9, 10 songs from Appetite every night. It's their signature work. I love the User Illusion albums. Love them. I even love Chinese Democracy. But when it comes to Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction is the album you talk about. And number one on my list, because no other album could have been number one on my list if we're talking about my favorite and greatest debut albums, and that's Pearl Jam's 10. Uh, the track listing is ingrained in my head. I don't even need to look it up to read it to you. It's Once, Evenflow, Alive, Why Go, Black, Jeremy, Oceans, Porch, Garden, Deep, and Release. They played it from beginning to end in Philadelphia a few years ago, and I've heard all of the songs on this album many times. Uh, I'll tell you a story about the song Release. When I first started going to Pearl Jam shows, uh, it was the first song that I noticed I hadn't heard. Uh, and it started, you know, four, five shows. Man, I hope they play release. And the thing about release, especially in 2000, 
is they either played it first or they didn't play it at all. So you would know, you know, seconds into the concert whether you were going to hear a release that night. And, you know, show after show, my friend Mike and I would wait to hear the uh, opening opening chords from Stone Gossard of release, and it never happened. And all through the 2002, I went to 12 shows, never heard, you know, release. And then got to 2003, and I'd been to, at this point, in the 20s of shows. And, you know, that first uh, weekend of shows was uh, Cleveland and Pittsburgh, no release. Then Buffalo. And I remember going into the Buffalo show in 2003, May of 2003, thinking, wow, it'd be awesome if tonight's the night for release. Nope. And then the next night was State College. And I remember kind of, I had a, a, an upper bowl seat and my friend Aaron had a lower seat. And he said, you can come down and kind of squeeze in with me. And I remember when the lights went out, I said to him, if for some reason we get bounced out of here and release is the first song, you go in the hallway, let me hear release, then I'll come out, you can come back, and I'll go up top. And the first, the lights are out, people are screaming, release starts, and he turned to me and he said, this is it, isn't it? And I smiled, and my phone was ringing, and it was my friend Matt, who didn't want to say anything. It wasn't like he wanted to talk. He was just in the upper deck, and it was just like kind of a wink to me saying, yes, here it is, release. Finally, after 20 shows, you get to hear, you know, release. And it was such a great moment, and I was so happy to hear it. And then in 2005, when I took Anthony to his first show, uh, the very first song he heard was release. I wanted to crack him in the head. I thought he didn't he didn't pay his dues. But those are my top five uh, debut albums. Number five, Bad Company, Bad Company. Uh, number four, Alice in Chains, Facelift. Number three, Tool, Undertow. Two, Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction. And one, Pearl Jam 10. Uh, just missed uh, Boston. Boston uh, definitely was on here. Van Halen's first record could have made the list. The reason I didn't put it on was because I like 5150 better than the first Van Halen record. So like, I like the first record of the other version of Van Halen better than the original first record of the original version of Van Halen. So I left it off. But, oh, the Sheila Devine's first record, New Parade, could have been on my list. Uh, Really a fun exercise. I can't wait to find out what the next top five is. Uh, Eddie has said that he's going to do these once a week uh, during the quarantine. And uh, I look forward to participating uh, in that. All right. That's it for today. Listen, I hope everyone out there is safe and healthy and getting through this. I know it's tough. I often lay around at night and think about what the day might have been like if we had never heard COVID-19. And uh, it's a bummer. I know. I hope these podcasts help a little bit, if at all. Uh, And I hope just that, you know, just stay safe and be smart and do what's best for you and your family. And this will be all over soon and we'll look back on it. All right. We'll be back next week. We are.
Turn back the 